This is QAV, a podcast for people who want to learn how to invest like a professional. Well, welcome everybody to the first episode of QAV Reboot 301, the Reboot series. My name's Cameron Riley. With me is my partner in crime, Tony Kynaston. How are you, Tony? I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you, mate. Uh, we're recording this uh, late March or March 23rd, 2020. We're both currently in lockdown from coronavirus. And I want to explain for new listeners and for old listeners the concept of the reboot. So we've been doing this podcast now for about uh, a year and change. And over that period of time, as we've been explaining Tony's investment methodology and who Tony is, we'll get to that in a minute if you're brand new. But Tony has an investing methodology that he's been developing over 25, 30 years. And that what we do on this podcast is we explain how that works. Now, when we started this podcast 13 months, 14 months ago, yeah, it was okay. I did my best to make it a good show. I've been doing podcasts for 15 years, so I know how to make a podcast, but I was... I was completely out of my depth when it came to Tony's investing stuff, to financial data and terminology and the modeling and all this kind of stuff. So it took me a long time to get up to speed. I reckon at least six months before I felt a little bit comfortable with it. And consequently, those episodes is a lot of me dog paddling through this stuff, trying to keep my head above water. And Tony wasn't really used to A, speaking on a microphone, and B, uh, articulating this to anybody outside of himself at 3 a.m. over a scotch uh, because he's he's just done it himself for 30 years. Apart from his family, he's never really ex- had to explain it to anyone before. And as he's been explaining it on the show over the last year and a bit, he's got a lot better at it. In fact, he's very good at it now. He's, he's, he's Warren Buffett in training with his uh, bon, bon mots. So we had a dinner in Sydney last week before the lockdown with some of our QAV listeners in Sydney, and uh, they suggested, hey, why don't you redo those episodes? Because I think you'll do a better job of them now, now that you're a lot more fluent in how to talk about this stuff. And we thought, what a great idea, much easier for new listeners to start uh, uh, with these, uh, these reboot versions. Also, the checklist that we use Tony's Tony's IP, but I wanted to build my own, so I uh, got my head around it. And I, this, it's gone through lots of changes over the last 30 months as I've improved on the checklist and streamlined it and modified it. So uh, if you go, if you, you know, you're starting at 101, episode 101, you're going to have to go through all the different checklist changes uh, in a linear timeline. If you start with this one, you'll be able to use the latest version, at least as of March 2020. I don't think it's going to change a lot from here, but who knows? So anyway, Tony, that's my preamble out of the way. Oh, we do want to always start with this disclaimer. This podcast is an information provider. We're giving you information about uh, how Tony invests and we will talk about stocks and we will talk about other investment vehicles but we're not recommending that you buy anything we're not recommending that you invest this way we are not financial advisors we haven't taken into account your individual investment objectives or financial circumstances or needs please don't take anything you ever hear on this podcast or on our website or in our emails as financial advice if you need financial advice go see a financial advisor 
what this podcast is about is is explaining how one guy who's a very successful professional investor and has been doing it for decades how he thinks how he invests and uh, you may, and to basically teach financial literacy how to how to value one way of valuing a stock and deciding what it's worth and what to pay for it but it, don't take it at financial advice is my bottom line here i hope i've been very clear on that tony do you want to add anything no that was a good summary well, the way that we started the original series, and I think we should start this one as well, is to talk a little bit about you, Tony. I know it's your least favourite subject to talk about. <laughs> You're uh, quite a quite a quiet fellow. Uh, by the way, for new listeners, uh, Tony and I go back over 12 years. We've known each other a long time. We've become friends. We've worked on a number of projects together. We've written a book. We've made a film. We've travelled the world uh, for fun. And uh, so we, we know each other very well. Now, uh, during that 12 years, I didn't really know much about how Tony made money. Uh, I did assume for a while that he was some kind of a hitman for the mob, probably the Irish mob, because he's quite tall, pale, and has red hair, so he didn't look Italian. And uh, I knew that he, I think I asked you early on, what, what do you do, Tony? He said, oh, I'm just an investor. <laughs> I was like, okay. And that was it. I think that was over our first dinner at uh, yeah. a teppanyaki restaurant in Fortitude Valley 12 <laughs> years ago, 11 to 12 years ago. And, yeah. um, and you know, that was basically it. I went, all right, well, obviously you don't want to share. So, <laughs> okay, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll just do all the talking then, shall I? Uh, and then a, you do all the talking anyway. I know, I know. That, that was that's the joke there. Um, and then about uh, the beginning of last year, beginning of two thousand and nineteen, I have twin sons who are eighteen at the time. They had their own podcast, and they said, "You know, Tony's quite a wealthy guy, right?" And I said, "Yeah, I think so." And they said, "Well, we want to talk about money management and and making money for our audience. Do you think Tony would come on and be a guest?" And I said, "Yeah, I'm sure he'd be he'd be happy to." And you did that, and I listened to that episode, and in that episode, you actually explained your investing methodology at a very high level. And I was like, what? You do what? You you have a what? A system for making money, and you've never told it to me, you rat bastard. And so <laughs> we... You've never had any money anyway. You kept telling me I've got no money. Well, that's true. I have no money. But if I had had money, it would have been good to know how to invest it. And uh, and so a couple of days later, I said to Tony, why don't we do a podcast about this this uh, method that you have? And you're like, really? Would anyone want to listen to that? And I was like, yeah, I, I think some people might not like to know how to invest successfully. <laughs> and that's the, been the show. And of course, over this time, you know, it's been relatively successful. And a lot of people um, have expressed their appreciation to us, but to you mostly for taking your time freely at no charge over the last year to talk about the basics of, of wealth creation through investing and the, the basic fundamentals of how to be a successful investor. So that's the genesis of the show. But Tony, why don't we go back and you tell us, well, before you became an investor, what was your, what was your career like? Oh, I had a career in retail for 20 years. So I started off after university in the uh, IT department, at the Shell Company of Australia. And after a couple of years in IT, I felt like I wasn't part of the action. So I moved across into 
the retail side of Shell, which is the section that looks after service stations and distributors and does the actual business of selling petroleum products. And worked my way up from there into general management roles. I started off in the uh, financial planning area, so I got a good overview of how Shell operates in Australia, and then uh, went out into the field in Queensland and looked after the auto care franchises and all the uh, service stations around Queensland Northern Territory uh, and the car washes, and then became the Central Queensland Territory Manager, so looked after some big fuel distributorships and some service stations. When I say looked after, uh, I was basically the franchisor. They were the franchisees, so lots of discussions around how to price products, uh, going after winning big contracts, uh, looking after health, safety, and environment. Okay, okay, okay. We don't need to go into that much detail, okay. Tony. You were right. you were a corporate exec at Coles and Shell. That's basically all I was looking for. Oh, okay. All right, you, sure. you ran very large companies for twenty yes. years. Okay, I did. I, and I, then Coles Meyer and Yep. And then, <laughs> when did your investing career start? I feel like this reboot should be called. <laughs> Podcast attention. I'm in lockdown. I'm to, having to redo my work. Damn. <laughs> I thought we'd slide that one through last year. <laughs> it's like being in the breakfast club without Molly Ringwald and Ali Sheedy. <laughs> well, who am I? Judd Nelson or the, uh, the, the teacher? The teacher. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yep. So what, you, what was the question, sorry? How did your investing career start? Yeah, good question. So when I was at Shell, and it would have been, I'm guessing, the mid-90s, so towards the end of my time there, uh, they came up with a, uh, a way of giving us some extra remuneration by offering us a loan uh, that had to be used for investment purposes. You couldn't sort of uh, buy a house and live, live in it with this loan. It was to the uh, amount of your annual salary, and uh, it was offered at a low interest rate, the kind of interest rate Shell was getting when they borrowed money which was less than the market rate. And I thought that was a great idea. And a couple of friends and I got together and we said, well, what are we going to do? How are we going to invest it? Let's take Shell up on this offer. And uh, so we did. And we did a bit of investigation. And we spoke to a guy who was a property developer about going into partnership with him. We went to some big name stockbrokers and asked their advice. And we thought both of those were a bit too pedestrian because we were gung-ho young, you know, uh, masters of the universe at Shell and we wanted to invest in things that were going to double our money quickly. And uh, we uh, started doing all the wrong things because we were aggressive. So we took tips from people, from stockbrokers, uh, from our colleagues in the uh, upstream side of the business who were involved in uh, startup petroleum drilling companies and the like. And basically after about a year, I lost half my capital uh, through mostly penny dreadful investments in the mining sector uh, and uh, yeah I've got that was a bit of a wake-up call and I thought shit you know not only have I lost half my capital but eventually I'll have to pay it back and so I've got to find it from somewhere too so that was like a, a double whammy and uh, so I started to subscribe it to whatever newsletter I could find on investing uh, read any book I could find on investing and one day I happened to be in an airport bookshop and I came across the making of an American capitalist book by a guy called Roger Lowenstein and uh, it was a book about Warren Buffett and it really resonated with me the whole the whole idea of value investing his story it had a much more scientific feel to it than what I'd been used to so far uh, in things I'd read or heard 
and it also had a very good take on how to take the emotion out of it and you know just just make common sense it it, it seems simple and uh, so I started applying those principles and uh, eventually got my money back and was able to pay, pay Shell out in its line when I left and moved across to Colesmeyer and the investment bug bit and uh, I went from there. And for people who don't know who Warren Buffett is, although I think most people probably do, we'll, we'll talk yeah. more about him in a minute. So how long have you been a full-time professional investor now, Tony? Well, I retired when I was 43, so about 14 years ago. Right. And, and to put that, and, and mm-hmm. the caveat is that my wife has been working, so we've been able to live off her income mm-hmm. and then uh, invest all of our capital all the time uh, to, to let that grow. Mm-hmm. You decided to be a stay-at-home dad and just manage the investment portfolio. Yeah, well, Jenny and I joke about her being P&L and me being balance sheet. <laughs> so she, she's cash flow and I'm capital. <laughs> right. And I had, the, I had the benefit of raising my daughter, which was fantastic. We have a great relationship because of that. And, it, and it's not because you're uh, some sort of a misogynist and you sent your wife out to work. We should point out that <laughs> yeah, your wife, Jenny, is a very successful uh, corporate executive and loved her yep. work and didn't want, to, yes. didn't want to retire. Could have retired, had the option, chose not yes. to. Yes. Until no, exactly. re- recently. <laughs> yeah, well, she may retire, although she's talking about going back to work. She resigned from a current role recently. Yeah. And uh, we'll be finishing up soon and she's going to take six months off and consider her options. But you've basically been uh, a professional investor now for several decades and full-time for the last 14, 15 years. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Investing since about, I would say, the mid-90s, so 25 years. Yeah. And the average return on your portfolio over that 25-year period? Yeah, 19.5%. Again, full disclosure, it's probably going to drop now that the market's tanking, but... Uh, I think once we come out the other side, it'll be back up there again. Well, well that... when I say tank, it might drop to 18%, something like that, 17 But at the moment, as of the end of last year, 19.5%. Now, to put that in perspective, because when you first told me that, I mean, it sounded good, but I didn't really know how good it was. Over the last 50 or 60 years that Warren Buffett has been investing with Berkshire Hathaway, I think he claims that his average annual return is about 19.8%. Does that sound right? 90.7 or 90.8? Yeah, it's something around that. Definitely above 19. So that means that there are some years when it's going to be much higher than 19%, some years when it will be lower, like this year, for example, when the market is tanked due to coronavirus. But on average, over 10, 20 years and beyond, it averages out at 9.5%. So for people who have been around investing for a while, they will know that the all odds, the, the, the uh, Australian Stock Exchange, and this is true of other stock exchanges like uh, in the US or any other country, if you look at their average growth over decades, it tends to be somewhere around uh, 9, 10, 11%, depending on which exchange you're looking at. Again, some years it'll be higher, some years it'll be lower, but on average, it's about 10%, let's say, rule of uh, just for a, a quick uh, heuristic. Uh, and you're you're basically doubling that. Your objective is to basically double the index. Correct. Yes, double the market. On the premise that uh, if we can filter out the bad stocks, some of the rest must do better than the index. So again, not rocket science, and that might be a simple statement 
uh, well, it sounds like a simple statement, but it's hard to put into practice because the filter is the key. But but yeah, if you if you think about it, if you take out the rotten apples, the rest should be uh, edible. And we'll talk about how you do that as we go along. My own brief bio. My name's Cameron Riley. I had a career in sort of tech in the 90s. I worked at one of Australia's first ISPs in the mid-90s. Then I got a job at Microsoft in the late 90s. I was at Microsoft for seven years, sort of as a one of the dot-com guys, uh, first early sort of internet people that Microsoft hired. I'd travel around the country and talk to CIOs about what the internet was and what HTML was and uh, how Microsoft was going to make the internet so much better. Uh, I left that in 2004 and started Australia's very first ever podcast, believe it or not. It was called G'day World. And then in early 2005, I started the world's first podcast network, cunningly called The Podcast Network, and built that up for a few years and was making money out of advertising until the GFC hit in 2008, and we lost all of our advertising overnight. And I went and cried in a corner for a couple of years and did some marketing jobs, came back into podcasting in 2013. And today, my I make my living out of producing podcasts, mostly on ancient history. If you want to check those out, go to thepodcastnetwork.com. And despite working in the stock market uh, when I was 18, in, uh, just after the 87 crash for a while, and working for a private investment firm a little bit after that, I uh, have had a number of failed startups, uh, lost, been divorced several times. I'm the world's worst money manager, completely broke, even though I'm nearly 50, lost it all in divorces and startup failures. Uh, so the, the premise for this show basically is Tony, who's very good with money, is teaching me, a complete idiot, uh, how to stop being a complete idiot. And you, the audience, get to uh, listen as he does that. Uh, now, Tony, uh, let's talk a little bit about value investing, your, your style of investing. You, you mentioned Warren Buffett before. Can you give us a quick background on value investing and why you think it uh, is the, the best form of investing? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think if you take it back to first principles, all investing is value investing. We're all trying to buy something now which we think is undervalued and will be worth more in the future. Uh, but there are different ways of doing that. And there's a, there are people who focus on growth, so they're looking for companies which they think will grow quickly, and they buy those. There are people who think that, that the best way to invest is by quality, and they don't really care about the price as long as the company is, uh, is a high-quality company, and they'll buy those. And there are people who kind of do a bit of both, and they're called momentum investors, so they follow the trends in the stock market. But a value investor is looking for things which uh, sell for less than what's called the intrinsic value. And that's the kind of rub. You've got to work out what the intrinsic value is and you've got to find the undiscovered companies, so to speak, that are trading below what uh, they really should trade for. And that's what value investing is. So how does Warren Buffett fit into this, Tony? Yeah, well, he's probably the most famous value investor. There are, there are others, but he's been around for a long time. The guy's, I think, about 87 or 88 years old now, maybe even 89, I'm not sure. He has a partner called Charlie Munger, who's even older, and they've been doing it since the 50s and 60s. Uh, Buffett learned at Columbia University at the feet of a guy called Ben Graham, and Ben Graham, along with his, uh, his uh, colleague, uh, 
Dodd. I forgot Dodd's first name, but anyway. Uh, wrote a book called... Um, Oh, shit, what's it called? Jeez, my memory's going. We've been talking for too long. <laughs> Securities, Securities analysis. Securities analysis. Yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. Uh, yeah, they wrote a book on how to analyse securities, and uh, that led to the concept of intrinsic value and to some of the concepts that Buffett has continued to teach, like the fact that price is what you pay and value is what you get, and in the short term, the market is a weighing machine and uh, is a voting machine. But in the long term, it's a weighing machine. What does that mean? Can you explain that? Yeah. So a stock market is a market. It's it's people coming together to buy and sell products. And in this case, the product is a share in a company. And uh, so it's subject to all the kinds of psychology and whims of human nature that we encounter every day. And that's why in the short term, it's a voting machine. So shares and their prices will move according to how people vote with their feet in the short term. So at the moment, the shares are shares are going down quickly because people are selling up and getting out of the market. So the votes at the moment are, the votes are in and the market's crashing. People are, people are going to cash. But in the long term, the a share price of a company should represent what its uh, value is, what its intrinsic value is. And there is, we'll have to talk in detail about what that means. But basically, the weighing machine comes into play in the long term so if, for example, BHP is a good company, even though it's being sold off now, eventually the share price will track back to what, it's, uh, uh, what it should do to reflect the accurate value of BHP. Right. I've got a, I remember I've got a quote from Buffett uh, somewhere here. Let me just find it. Yeah. If a business does well, the stock usually follows. So yeah, he's trying to right. basically, in my understanding of value investing at a very simple level, is it's looking for well-performing companies, good quality companies that are well-managed, have a good business, uh, good prospects for the future, they're making cash, and it looks like they're going to continue to perform well for the future uh, because generally speaking, the shares of those companies will do well. And then B, the second component of it is buying stocks in those companies when you can buy them at a reasonable price. You work out what you think the value of that stock is on any given day, and then you try and buy it at a discount to that. Uh, and that's basically basically it. Yeah, that's right. There's a lot of things to unpack in those simple statements, but that's essentially what I do is try and marry some kind of measurement of or rating of what the quality of a company is with uh, a rating or analysis of how discounted the, the share price is to what I think it's worth. Right. Hmm. And just more on Buffett, I mean, the guy's been investing for a long time, so he has gone through a couple of iterations of that whole process. Uh, early on in his career, he was focusing on more of the value side of things and paid less attention to quality. Then he teamed up with Charlie Munger, and Munger convinced him to pay more attention on the quality side of things. And he he, pay, he went from trying to buy things at deep discount to paying a fair price uh, for a quality company. And uh, now he's probably more focused on the quality side of things. How can I preserve my capital going forward? Because mm. now he's, you know, spending hundreds of billions of dollars to buy large chunks or entire chunks of business. He's not just uh, trading on the market like uh, you or I would. 
Correct. And, it's and a most different of his kind of investments game. are outside. Most of his investments are outside the share market now, even though it's still a big part of Berkshire Hathaway, yeah. which is his company. Hmm. Um, I think maybe about three quarters is is actually or the market capitalization is tied up in direct investments in companies. And one of the things I've learned since we've been doing this show is that value investing, this style, this Buffett or Benjamin Graham style of investing, uh, it, it goes through cycles in terms of its popularity in the market. Uh, you know, last year we were at the tail end, as it turned out, of a fairly long bull market, a boom market, and people weren't interested in value investing, generally speaking. They thought it was boring. They thought it was out of fashion. This time it's different, they would say to us. And mm. they you know, they wanted to put all their money in tech stocks, high growth stocks that mm. would never get through your checklist because quite often they're either losing money or their, their PE ratios are too high and a variety of other things. And uh, their future is uncertain, but their share price is going up, 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 and so people jump on board. And they think value investing is boring. Of course, then the market crashes. And typically, uh, if, I, if I understand my history, uh, value investing will become a little bit more valued by the market as yeah. in the next five years. But then the market will get back to a cycle again mm-hmm. where it'll hit another boom time and people be like, oh, value investing stupid. <laughs> it's dead. It's over. Uh, but mm. what But you know, what I've learned from you over the, the last year is that, yeah, look, some people make money during boom times by jumping on bandwagons, but then they tend to lose money more than they make money. It's very difficult to find anyone who isn't a value investor who has produced consistent roughly 20% returns year in, year out over decades outside of value investors. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There probably are exceptions, but and obviously, you know, the uh, venture capitalists in, in, Silicon Valley, in Silicon Valley may have had similar results from investing in tech stocks or better results from investing in tech stocks, but but mostly the successful long-term investors are value investors. Yeah, I'm talking about regular people investors. Yeah, no, that's right, regular people investors. And just to unpack that a bit, I mean, we we saw it happening last year. It's this is what happens. It's it's maybe it's an indicator of the top of a bull market. If you look at when value funds start going down, within about two or three years, the market crashes. And what happens is it's because, uh, or it's because people, especially new to the share market, and oftentimes in this case it was millennials, are going out saying twenty percent. Poof, you know, I've got a mate who bought into Afterpay at five bucks, and he's made two hundred and fifty percent. You know, year on year going forward, blah blah blah. And, and I could name any of the other tech stocks in the what they call the Wax in Australia or the Fang um, companies in the US. And it's true, but look at them now. They're, 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 most of them are crashing. Not all of them, but most of them are crashing and oftentimes crashing worse than the rest of the market. And we're at the early stages of a, a share market correction at the moment, in my opinion, and uh, they're going to be starved for capital going forward and start to eat up all the cash. And that's, that's when you hang on for the white knuckle ride. And it's the millennials, or I shouldn't pick on any particular class of people. It's the people who have followed that trend and, and thought that 20% uh, year on year wasn't good enough, who are probably locked into those stocks. And they may recover, but a lot will go broke. 
And we should point out that the stock market, like every other market, but probably even more so, uh, trades on the fact that there are whole generations of new investors coming in Mm, every few years who were uh, uh, greedy and impatient and want to make quick returns. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of old timers out there that smell new meat and take advantage of that. (laughs) Exactly. And it's the uh, and it's the old most, dogs like you, the old fuddy duddies, yes. like Alan Kohler called you. Whether or not he actually did, I can't remember. But as far as I'm concerned, he did. He at least intimated it if he didn't use those words when he was on our show. Uh, just stick to basic, time worn, tested principles that mm. have worked for Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger for sixty years, and they're still around. And they're still going and they're in their 80s and 90s and they're incredibly wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and they sleep at night. They sleep well at night. They're not, they're not, I think one of the things you may have noticed about me, even though there's a lot of worry in the world at the moment, is I'm not overly worried about the share market. No, because you've got rules and principles that you follow and it uh, has worked for you in previous recessions and downturns and you see no reason why it won't work this time. And by the way, there are also similar rules that uh, other value investors like a Warren Buffett and a Charlie Munger use. And so you know, you, you're you yeah. confident that you've got a plan and you stick to the plan. And that's what most of us don't have when we get into investing is we don't have a plan. We do what you did in the early stages. Well, yeah. screw it up. And then after that, run around and try and read stuff and piece it all together. And there's a lot of contradictory stuff out there. Yeah. Whereas you've um, dedicated decades of your life to figuring it out and uh, distilling it down to something that dummies like me can understand. Yeah, right. No, exactly right. Keep it simple. That's important too. That was a good opportunity and- for you to jut in there and say, you're not a dummy, Cam. Don't put yourself oh, down like that. But uh, <laughs> that moment's gone now forever. I just want you, to point that you out. You need to DM me in Skype when I get uh, <laughs> lines like that. <laughs> no, you're, well, you're not dummy. Follow, you're, you're, follow you're, the script, Tony. It says sorry. right there in the script, oh, Cameron, you're not a dummy and you're very handsome and well endowed. I, you know, just read. Ah, go to all this uh, effort. You just don't do your job. Uh, Back to the tension I go. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about the investment ladder, Tony. What is the investment ladder? Yeah, so let me step back from value investing and say that uh, a lot of people don't get into investing or direct investing themselves because they lead busy lives. And they have a career as a doctor or a nurse or a teacher or an architect or whatever. And uh, having to spend time managing their finances just really not possible because they're so busy. Uh, people may from time to time dabble in it and come in and out, uh, but, but sticking to it full time over a long period of time does require a bit of, a bit of um, time. And uh, I have to say that I'll, I'd be spending maybe an hour or so a day, sometimes more uh, in periods like we're in now when there's lots happening or if companies are reporting, um, but it can be done for kind of an hour or two a day. Um, but most people who are you know, raising, busy raising families, they have other lives, they don't want to do that. So let me just sort of outline what I, what I call the investment stepladder that might take you from that uh, being busy with your own career uh, up, up a few rungs to being able to be a, uh, more in control of your own finances. And I have to say that if you stay on the bottom rung, that's fine too. 
if it, if it works for you, that's great. The, there are four rungs to the ladder. The first rung is, please, if you have any sort of money invested at all anywhere, make sure you're limiting your fees. Uh, I went through my father's finances when he was very late in life and he was a very proud man who didn't like to ask for advice. And when I did, I was just completely blown away by how much he was paying in fees for really getting no benefit. And, and the first thing I'd say to people is check what you're paying and what you're getting. And so how do you do that? Well, you compare it to the lowest cost uh, operator in the market, and that is a low cost index fund. In the Australian market, for me, that means companies like Australian Foundation Investment. So their code on the stock market is AFI. They're what they, what's called a listed investment company. So it's basically a, a managed fund that you can invest in, which is listed. So when you go to invest in it, you buy shares in the company rather than giving them your money and they invest it on your behalf. Uh, why do I like that company? Well, it, the, the, what they call the management, invest, or the management expense ratio is about uh, 0.25 of 1%. And that management expense ratio is equivalent to the fees that the fund manager would charge you to manage your money. So that company gets basically the stock market average return because they have a big basket of stocks. It's been around for over 100 years. And so they just continually buy and sell and rebalance their, their holdings to resemble what the stock market looks like. And so you get the average returns. And as you said before, Cam, the average in the stock market is about 10% year on year. Uh, so that's not shabby. I mean, there's not, if you think about the companies that are out there on the stock market, I'd hazard a guess and say half to three quarters aren't making that kind of return in their own businesses. So to be able to go out there and get 10% with the cost of it being a quarter of 1% is pretty good. And so if you're not, if, you're, if your investments aren't getting that, please consider seeking financial advice and moving across into at least owning shares in something like Australian Foundation Investment. That's my, that would be my, uh, I don't like giving financial advice, but that's my recommendation to investigate. Go and get your own financial advice, advice and compare it. Now, I know some industry super funds um, offer that kind, a similar kind of low fee service, uh, but, but again, look at all their fees. If you need to talk to them about their fees, you might find you're paying more than you think. Uh, or seek financial advice. So that's that's step number one. Please limit your fees and please at least get the, the average return in the share market. Step number two though is, okay, if you're at step number one and you're feeling like you're, you're pretty happy, stay there. But if you want to get better at um, rising up the ladder, then maybe you want to put together your own index fund because if you think about the way the index is structured, really the top 20 stocks by market cap is most of the index. I think it's over 70% of the value of the stock market by market capitalization is contained in the top 20 stocks on the ASX. So it's actually not hard for you yourself to go out and buy an equivalent of your own index fund. Go and buy shares in the top 20 stocks and buy them in a, a ratio which is equivalent to their market cap. So you're buying more of CSL and BHP and maybe less of Woodside or Woolworths or whoever's on the bottom of that list at the moment. But you can reasonably easy put together your own index fund 
And that's just gonna cost you the share brokerage of doing that. And that will just cost you at once when you when you trade. So that's even a, potentially even a cheaper option for you. And then maybe once every six months when the companies report their, their latest earnings um, or 12 months, depending on you know how you feel, uh, look up what the market caps are and look up who's in that top 20 and maybe take out the one that's fallen out and add one in that's, uh, that's changed, that's come into the top 20. And so you can, you can quite cheaply keep your own index fund going. Again, giving you the average return over the years uh, for a very low cost. So that's step two. Then step three is, you might say to yourself after you've done that for a while, well, hang on, not all these top 20 companies are giving me my, the returns I want. I'm getting the average return of them. So what's, what's different here? And I certainly went through that process. And what I found was that the best return in that top 20 stocks, and, and I now do it for the top 10 stocks because it's a little bit easier than doing it for 20, is to say, if I can work out what I think the, the, each of these companies will be worth next year, and I look for the biggest discount between what I think the, the value of that company is and what its current share uh, price is, and I buy that company, then shouldn't I shouldn't I just get the return of it closing the gap, which is often above 10%? Uh, and the answer is yes. It, more times than not, you do that, and your return over time is going to be higher than the 10% average because you're trying to pick the winner in that uh, that uh, top 20 or top 10 portfolio that you, you're, you're holding. And once you get good at doing that and you start to understand how to value companies, um, then that you logically leads you to the next question of, well, why just limit myself to the top 10 or 20 companies on the share market? Surely there are companies out there which aren't in the top 10 or 20, which are growing much faster or presenting better value to us than that top 20 uh, list of companies. And that's the case. And that's where we are with our QAV investing uh, framework. Nicely done. So this is around your level of risk that you're ready to take, your level of sophistication or education uh, that you currently have or are willing to develop in terms of becoming an investor, the amount of effort that you're able to put in or willing to put in. So it's a, it's a, the first one is the easiest, lowest effort, lowest risk for the best possible return. And then it increasingly gets a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more risk, but for better returns. Correct. Yes. Or lower cost. Or lower costs. Right. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. better returns too, right? Because well, it is. You're right, actually. Yeah. Yes, good point. Cost comes off the returns. Uh huh. All right, Tony. Well, I guess that leads us to level four then, uh, QAV, which involves the checklist. And so maybe we start talking about uh, the the concept of the checklist. Probably don't have time in this episode to get too deep into how it works in detail. We'll leave that for the next episode. But maybe we can talk about what it is and how it works and why you developed it. And I, I just want to say to people, uh, if you're listening to this and you're one of our QAV Club subscribers, you can go up to our website and download the checklist, the, the Excel spreadsheet, the latest version of it. Just go to the portfolio and checklist tab. You'll find links there. For QAV subscribers, you'll be able to get a copy of that. For everyone else, if you're just uh, tuning in and, and getting a feel for it, just uh, we'll, we'll try and explain it verbally bit by bit. Yeah, yeah. So why a checklist? Uh, well, I started using a checklist to, to guide my investing about 
seven or eight years ago. So I haven't always used it, uh, but it came about when I read a book called The Checklist Manifesto about uh, a doctor who said, you know, I'm a surgeon and I'm in a hospital and we have too many patients who die from basic mistakes or who relapse and come back in with other problems uh, because of mistakes we caused uh, in surgery. And so he cast around and said, well, is there a better way of uh, doing surgical procedures where we make less mistakes? And he looked to the airline industry and he, he was uh, amazed that airlines operate with a very, very, very low uh, crash ratio or incident ratio compared to the number of planes in the air. And he said, well, how, is, how, how does that happen in the airline industry, but not in the, in the hospitals? where both both uh, industries run by smart people. And what he found was that pilots will go through a checklist, uh, especially before they take off. And I'll make sure that all the functions in the plane are serviceable and working. And uh, they'll go through the whole process line by line. They won't skip any lines. If there's a problem, they'll stop and they'll sort the problem out before they take off. And he thought, that's a great idea. I can apply it to a hospital environment. So as the patient comes in at the start of the process, the doctors and the nurses go through a whole checklist of procedures uh, to make sure that we're doing the right surgery, that the patient is who they who we thought they were, you know, and, and blah, 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 um, that everything in the, in the operating room is as it should be, all the instruments are sterilised, etc., etc. And he found that by applying a checklist to surgery uh, in his hospital, the relapse rates and the, and the patient care went up. And so I thought, that's a great idea. How do I apply it to what I do? And so I started to systematize what I did. And up until that point, I had a lot of heuristics and I would apply them at different times given the situations. Again, always going back to Buffett and Munger and Graham to guide me. Uh, but over, over time, you kind of distill things that you'll look at. And I decided to put those down into a checklist, which is, itself has evolved over time as well. And I've emphasized some things and lessened the emphasis on others, added some things, taken them out. And uh, that's where we are. It's, it's a process which guides me for investing. And, uh, you know, I want to just uh, let people know that from my perspective, the, the most exciting aspect of the checklist is it only uses numbers, uh, so the way that the checklist allows us to evaluate any particular stock and determine whether or not it deserves a buy rating or not, it's all about looking at publicly available numbers. I don't need to be an expert on the travel industry or the medical goods industry or the uh, uh, whatever industry afterpay is, the lay-by industry, the fake lay-by industry, the fake credit industry. I, or the mining industry or the, or the or the telecoms industry. I don't need to be an expert in these things because Tony's figured out a way to get the numbers to tell that story. And we, we, you know, we can get those numbers from a variety of different sources. We'll talk about the data services uh, in a minute. But it enables us to use the numbers and, and the different scores and ratings that other, that other services give that particular stock to get an overview of its current financial and management health and the predicted future financial and uh, other performance aspects of the business from people who are experts, analysts who do study these industries, study these businesses, and hopefully have a good idea of what's going on. 
enables us to gather a summary of number of different kinds of data and put it into a little framework and spits out a score at the end. It's, it's a brilliant piece of condensation. I always say it's Tony's equals MC squared. He looked at all of this complex stuff and he condensed it down to 20 questions and a, a star at the end. So not wanting to blow too much uh, smoke up your ass, Tony, but I think it's I think you deserve a Nobel Prize for it. I'm putting you for that with the... I've submitted you to be the Pope and to get a Nobel Prize next year for this. And the other good thing about it is, uh, you know, as you always say, look, this is a, it's a guideline, it's not a rule, or as I've been saying, it's 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 a tool, not a religion. The checklist. Yeah, yeah, it's a framework. Yeah, you it, could it guides us. Yep. It guides us. Yeah, and there are times when you or or anyone using it can decide they're going to make exceptions to a rule. It's to yep. help us invest, but it's not a religion. You're not going to go. You're not going to spend eternity in hellfire and damnation if you modify it change it however you want but i would you know check with tony before you change it it's just up to me there may be good reasons why he's got it the way it is well i think that's a good point though i do see the checklist as being an evolutionary process it's not set in cement i'm hoping that some of our listeners might come back in time and say look i've got better returns than you i did this and that and we can compare notes overall through all our listeners and come up with a better checklist Um, i may change it uh going forward myself that's that's how it evolved to where it is now mm-hmm. yeah but yeah I, I mean you're right I mean, I've towards the end of my career probably the second half of my career I got heavily involved in data uh, back when it was sort of very early on uh, before big data was a thing before moneyball was written all that kind of stuff so <laughs> I worked in loyalty programs I was a database marketing expert uh, ran a direct marketing company or sorry a direct marketing retailer uh, so I had a lot to do with data. So that kind of uh, looking for the story and the numbers really appealed to me uh, on when it came to investing. And and it kind of also backs up one of the things that Buffett said. He said uh, he thinks it's been a real advantage for him living in Omaha and not Wall Street because he's not swayed by what people say. He's swayed by the numbers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, based on discussions we've had recently, <laughs> C- CEOs are often chief belief officers or chief preach officers. <laughs> They're out there to convince people that their companies are great and going to last forever and keep growing. Mm-hmm. Um, but but uh, we have to kind of switch off that noise and look at the, the facts underneath. Well, one of the difficult things, obviously, for people with investing is it's it's very emotional uh, in good times and in bad times for different reasons and human beings are driven by emotions and mm. and it seems to me that a lot of the mistakes that people make with investing uh, certainly this is my case in, in the few dabbles that I've had over the decades before meeting you were, were based on emotion well I like this guy and uh, this mm. is a friend of mine's company or I like this story or I like this product or I don't want to miss out. Everything's going up. I should get on. I don't want to be the one idiot who missed out on this thing. Or, oh my God, everything's falling off a cliff. I better sell everything immediately, or I'm gonna every you know, it's gonna go down to zero, and I'm gonna lose everything. And the the thing about the checklist is it gives us relatively simple once you get your head around it. And there's a learning curve there. I think it took me six to twelve months to feel comfortable-ish with it. But uh, it's a set of guidelines, a set of rules that takes the emotion out of it. The score is either positive or it's negative. That's it. 
Doesn't matter what's going on. Doesn't matter if it's a bull market or a bear market. Doesn't matter if the sky is falling or the roads are paved with gold. Uh, there's a there's a score, and the score is yeah. the score is the score. Doesn't matter what's going on. All I need to do is pull the numbers, look at the score, and that tells me what I need to know. And it just allow, enables me to go, okay, well, as long as you believe in the checklist and you believe in the framework, and we believe in you and I, I have it on good authority from your wife that you're actually not the messiah you're just a very <laughs> naughty boy yep but and i think that's the the, the the problem for brand new people listening to this is you unlike me i mean they don't know either of us i've known you for over a decade and and i've been to several of your houses uh <laughs> in different parts of the world at different times um, I know your wife very well. I know your daughter very well. I think I know you pretty well. Either you're the world's greatest con man playing a really, really long con on me uh, <laughs> or you're the real deal. And I, I tend to well, think you're the real deal. If I was a good con man, wouldn't I try and con someone with some money? Well, yeah, you've just been like funding my projects, not getting money out of my projects. So you're, exactly. you're a, a, a long-term bad con man. It was how it would be. <laughs> um, so, like, maybe you're, maybe you're the con man. Yeah, well, yeah, well, you wouldn't be the first person to say that. Um, <clears throat> and so, like, for for people listening to this for the first time, look, you don't know me, you don't know Tony, and you're like, why, why should I listen to this guy? Well, listen, we've got <laughs> we've got a lot of people who've been listening to the show now for over a year. You can listen to them and read their testimonials, and uh, some of them have been on the show. We've had them on as guests, and they're very a lot of them are very successful people in their own right and they can uh they can back it up as well so uh, we understand that why the hell should i trust you guys but mm. the point is once you do trust tony and then you trust the checklist it removes that uh emotion and panic and fear from the scenario but you you may not be there today but keep listening listen to enough episodes and you'll get a sense for yourself i guess as to whether or not you think Tony's full of shit or he actually knows what he's talking about. The other thing... I'm I'm gonna, sorry, I'm, and I'm going to be the anti-CEO here. Don't trust us. That's why we're running a portfolio ourselves on the, on the, on the uh, checklist and on our website. Uh, when we get enough runs on the board, look at that. And yeah. if you want to follow us and follow along, do it on paper for a while. And, uh, and then just when you get comfortable and, and uh, can trust us based on our results, then yeah, go for it. Yeah, if you want to, if you know, if you're a skeptical person, that's fine. Be skeptical as long as you want. Yeah. We're, we're not, yeah. we're not in any hurry. We're not um, selling anything. And look, you're going to look at our portfolio right now, which we started on the second of September. The public uh, portfolio, of course, it right now in March of 2020 is way underwater, like everything else is. But we're not as far underwater as the ASX is, as the index is, and of course. That's our job is to beat the index. So when mm. when things are going up, we want to go up better than the index. When things are going down, we want to go down less than the index. And so far, that's what we've been doing. <laughs> Up until January or early February, we were uh, performing uh, much better than the index going up. Now we have dropped less than the index. But yes, this isn't this isn't magic. Uh, if the if the world is in a global market correction we're going to get swept up in that but yeah. because we're in the middle of a correction stocks are getting very very cheap 
And right now we're planning what we're going to be doing when the inevitable turnaround comes and the market starts to pick back up again. Because we should talk a little bit about that, um, you know, the the advantages or, or why a correction is actually a, a positive thing from an investment perspective. Yeah, it is. I mean, you can people say, uh, you know, buy a share and hold it for life, and that will definitely work for people. And I'm not going to argue against that, but I can get better returns than that because uh, our process tells us to go to cash at some stages. And if we're in cash when the market is dropping, then we're going to outperform the market, albeit we still might be negative. But the benefit of that is when the market turns around, we have a lot to deploy and we get a, a bigger bang for our buck than the market uh, will get us, give us if we were just uh, passively invested the whole time. Warren Buffett's got a saying, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And at times like this, and, and while the market bottoms out, most, particularly of those noob investors that we talked about before who don't have a plan, don't have a system, will be fearful still, even if the market starts to pick back up again because they'll be worried that it's what's known as a dead cat bounce. But uh, you've got a system for knowing when it's relatively safe to buy back in. And so we'll get in when the market is still relatively low and ride it all the way back up again. Yeah. And with a bigger, a bigger uh, ability to invest than if we had have stayed in the market the whole time. One other thing I want to cover before we get off the uh, introduction to the checklist stuff is the coffee shop analogy. When you started using Ooh. that, it made a big difference to me and helped me get my head around it. Um, so basically, you, you helped me understand that buying a stock in a business is exactly the same as if I was going to buy a small business like a local coffee shop. Do you want to sort of walk through the coffee shop analogy a bit? Yeah, sure. So I think one of the problems with the financial services industry is that if people make it more complex, they know they can charge bigger fees to demystify it for you. Um, so I think that's a real problem uh, with, our, with our industry. But the concepts overall are fairly simple and, and the trick is to reduce you know, a complex set of reports down to something which we can readily understand. And the, the, probably the easiest business to understand is a simple shop down the road. So we use it, as I'm talking to you now, I'm looking out the window at a coffee shop. So you know, I use the coffee shop analysis and we all know how they run as a business. So I have to either buy or rent some space. I have to buy a cappuccino machine. I have to fit it out with furniture, tables and chairs, and I have some uh, stock I need to buy, coffee beans, maybe some muffins, etc. And I have customers who come in and buy things off me. So it's a fairly simple transactional business, uh, but we can hopefully reduce even the biggest complex businesses down to those same sorts of uh, thought processes. I've got, I've got things I sell, I've got costs to do that, and uh, I've got to decide whether I want to buy that that coffee shop or that big business based on the metrics that we're of the available data. Yeah, and it and it really helps me take things that are potentially fairly abstract. We talk about PE ratios and price to cash ratios and earnings per share and future earnings per share and all these sorts of things. But when I think of them in terms of a coffee shop, and I guess that's the other, I think really. Um, thing that isn't necessarily obvious or self-evident to people that are new to this is that when a Warren Buffett or a Charlie Munger or a Tony Kynaston is buying a stock in a company, you are actually literally thinking of yourselves as getting into business with a business, with a, with a, business, with a company. 
Correct. You're, you're yes. looking at it not as an abstract figure on a or, or a dot on a graph. You're going, well, is this business making money? And how is it performing? And what do I think that's worth? So when we bring that back to the coffee shop analogy, it's like saying, okay, well, the going, they, I'm looking at buying this coffee shop. They say it's uh, the price is a hundred thousand uh, dollars. Well, what's it got in terms of its assets? How much money does it make? Um, what? How long will it take for the business to return enough profit to neutralize my? price my purchase price of the business mm. what do i think the chances are that it's going to continue or, or that its revenue is going to grow over the next few years how long do i think the business is going to grow for if i invest a hundred thousand dollars in it now you know uh, how long is it not only going to take to to pay me back that price and what is the risk associated with the length of time that I have to wait? Is it one year? Is it five years? Is it 10 years? Obviously, the longer it takes for it to return my initial purchase price, the more risk is involved because anything could happen. A coronavirus could hit and everything could go to shit. Um, or, or how long do I think it's going to return profits over and above that and therefore you know, make me multiple times my investment? These are easy enough concepts for me to understand when it comes to a little coffee shop. And so what we will do as we go through explaining the checklist is try and explain each of the data points and the scoring uh, of those data points as if it was a little coffee shop. And, and it just really helped me get my head around the, the data points and why they're important and what they stand for. And I, I think that I could be wrong, but I think the penny dropped with you when we started to talk about how long will it take me to get my money back if I buy that coffee shop at this price. Yeah, absolutely. And that, yeah. that brought in the whole discussion about risk. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the longer it takes, the more risk there is, and therefore I should try and get it paid back quicker. And uh, and that sort of, I think, was a bit of an eye-opener in terms of why we're focusing on value in our investments. Yeah, absolutely. No, it did. A light bulb went off when you first mm -hmm. put it in that in the, that uh, that terminology, and I really started to understand more uh, what, about what was going on. Thinking of these things, is this really a business that, like, if you look at the, the difference between, a, I don't know, a gold miner, let's say, and an afterpay, if you were Warren Buffett and you had a billion dollars and they said, hey, you want to come in and be a partner in the business as it is right now, would I really want to, you know, would I want to get in? Would I want to throw a billion dollars in this? Would I really want to become partners with these guys uh, looking at the business at that level? Do I, do I really believe in the prospects of this company and that it's going to be profitable long-term, et cetera, et cetera? And as I was explaining to one of my 19-year-old boys uh, yesterday when he was talking about whether or not he should have bought into Bitcoin last week, one of the other things you've helped me understand is the difference between investing and gambling. Do you want to explain how... <laughs> How you would define those two? Yeah, well, we are we are buying pieces of companies, so uh, the companies can be analysed. We can work out what we want to pay for those companies, what we think those companies are worth, and we can go along for the ride with management if we invest in them. That's investing. Uh, if we have no way of valuing something, if we have no understanding of it, if we have no knowledge of the industry it operates on or what drives the price up and down, then we're then we're gambling. That's that's the basic difference, and and you know generally, I mean there there aren't there aren't if you look at if you look at the BRW rich list or AFR rich list whatever it is now, there aren't any maybe except for David Walsh in Tasmania there aren't any billionaires on that list who are gamblers, or who got their money through gambling. 
there are plenty of billionaires on that list who got it through investing, either directly in companies or on the on the share market or in real estate. So you, you, you've got to if you can't if you can't articulate the 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 operation or the company you're buying a piece of, and whether or not it's a good price that you're paying for it, then it's speculation. It's gambling. Yeah. I mean, it's luck. You, if, I mean, if, if your only rationale is I think it's going to go up or I think it's going right. to go down, that's not, there, there's no science behind that. There's no uh, intelligence behind that. It's, it's a guess which becomes down to luck, which is, which is gambling. Yeah, and sometimes you'll get it right and a lot of times you'll get it wrong. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, it's speculation. It's, what you're trying to do in those cases is, is buy something and then sell it to the greater fool. So part, part, of that, part of that saying is acknowledging the fact that you're a fool in the first place. And then the other one is hoping that there's going to be a greater fool down the track who'll buy it off you for a higher price. Sometimes you're the greater fool. And the problem with luck is we know from coin toss experiments that it's yeah. it's basically 50-50. So luck is not a long time. I used to say this when I was a marketing consultant writing marketing strategies for clients. Like luck is not a long-term yeah. strategy for success, <laughs> right? Let's put That's some right. science behind what you're doing and why. Just yeah. throwing shit on the wall and hoping some of it sticks <laughs> is not a really great strategy. Yeah, Buffett has a good uh, aphorism for, for what we're talking about. He says... If you're sitting at a poker table playing poker and you look around the table and you can't tell who the patsy is, you're the patsy. <laughs> and his other one is a rising tide might carry your ships, but it's only when the tide goes out that you get to see who's been swimming naked. I like that Correct. one too. Yeah, which we're doing at the moment. The yeah. rising tide stopped in about January. Yeah, all right. Well, listen, let's leave episode one of the reboot uh, there, I think, Tony. In our next episode, we'll start to get into the detail of the checklist. We'll explain it step by step. We'll explain the different places you can get data from. And uh, we'll take people through the checklist process. And again, as I said earlier, if you want to download... The, if, if like we, uh, I should explain this too. We have free episodes each week and we have premium episodes this week. The free episodes are for people who are just checking it out or maybe want to learn a little bit more about investing, but they're not really hardcore serious. They're not ready to, you know, uh, dedicate serious energy to becoming successful investors. Um, for the people that want to be serious investors, for the hardcore people, that's what our premium series is for. If you're a premium subscriber, you get the checklist and there's extra newsletters and videos and episodes, extra episodes, longer episodes. Um, so you can get a two-week free trial to become a QAV Club member. Just go up to our website, qavpodcast.com.au. QAV, by the way, if you haven't worked out yet, stands for quality and value. We're looking at both quality and value when we're working out what uh, whether or not we should buy a stock. So go to qavpodcast.com.au, look for the 14-day uh, free trial thing. You can download everything, listen to all the premium episodes, see all the videos, everything's there for 14 days and you can decide whether or not you want to uh, you know, keep going with it or not after that. So with that, just one more reminder, don't take anything you heard on this as financial advice. We are not financial advisors. This is for educational purposes only. And good luck out there. Stay safe. Wash your hands. And we'll be back next week with next uh, well, part, part two of the reboot. Or as I call it, podcast attention. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Cam. That was great.